you are listening to the North Carolina Food and Beverage Podcast. Thank you for downloading and subscribing. Coming to you virtually live from high atop the historic Raleigh building in beautiful downtown Raleigh. The NCF&B takes the listener behind the scenes to tell the stories of the people that contribute to the creation of the food and beverage community of North Carolina. And now, the misfits in the dish pit, the faces of the front. They are Max Trujillo and Matthew Weiss. Hello, and thank you for listening to the North Carolina Food and Beverage Podcast. I am your co-host, Max Trujillo. And I am your co-host, Matthew Weiss. And today we go out to Carborough, North Carolina, and we have one of the pillars of the community out there, the owner and creator of Acme Carborough, also one of the driving forces of the United Food Hub out in Carborough, and also soon-to-be upcoming Project Plum over in Durham, crossing borders, one Chef Kevin Callahan. Welcome, Chef. Thanks for letting me on. This is great. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. Uh, So Kevin's on Zoom at at his uh, restaurant. I believe you're at Acme right now. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm in the office. Amidst a bunch of wine, as we can see in your backdrop. We switched over to a Zoom call to make this all happen, and it's uh, fantastic. It's probably better anyways because you've got things to do. You have been doing a lot. Once uh, once this quarantine kind of kicked in, we can we could start there a little bit just to kind of discuss. We have a mutual friend, Forrest Mason and Francesca yeah. Mason as well, uh, that you I'm know well. desk right now, yeah. You're at her desk? Ah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Like maybe scratch your initials into it just to, you know, show her who's boss. Sure, that will go over really well. Yeah, I don't think she'd appreciate that knowing Francesca. <laughs> yeah. What the heck is this? Yeah, uh, but let's uh, let's talk about Carborough United because I know that was something like right when we were getting uh, right when the quarantine kind of happened when the pandemic you know shut down all restaurants. There were a few businesses and a few people that said, "I got to figure out a way that we can help, and how can we do uh, something that helps the community?" So, if you would be so kind as to kind of let us know what what that was and how that process started. It was really, um, it's what happens when a group of people who are sort of creative (laughs) sit down and face a problem and go like, well, how do we, what do we do about this? Um, So Monday, the 16th of March came up. We knew very clearly that no one was going to be open for business. Our sort of group of managers were sitting around a table trying to figure out what it is, what it was going to look like moving forward. We can be able to open in a week, two weeks a month, a year, we had no real idea. And then we started to hear from, you know, how the grapevine works. We started to hear about people having the same issue all over town of like, well, what's going to happen? What's what's going to go on? And uh, we jumped in and said, well, why don't we figure out a way to create some sort of process where people can order food and get it from restaurants? And we started to, you know, spitball the idea. Um, what what it would take, what it would require. We got on the phone with U.S. Foods. They agreed to let us have a truck because we knew that was going to be a big thing, have a refrigerated truck to be able to hold food. We spoke Wait, to let a you have, right They now. let you have a truck? What do you mean? Like, are they dedicated a, a specific they truck? dedicated a truck. They just said, here, you can have this trailer. It's got a cooler in it. You have to fill it up with uh, fuel, but, but we'll let you have that for free. Kudos to, do to U.S. Foods. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, it was, 
I think that was the thing that we were so amazed. Every time we reached out to someone in that really literally 24 hour period, people said, yes, like the landlord for who owns where in front of the Kratz cradle and all that. And Carver said, we could use this parking lot, uh, within that first 24 hours, us foods had dropped off a truck. We had 12 restaurants, uh, 12 different purveyors who became involved sort of from the beginning. Um, Francesca, who we were talking about earlier, she got on with our POS system, people toast, and we became a beta site for, uh, offsite toast management. So we could sell things to people, you know, and literally within 48 hours, we had a system up and running for how we were going to try to keep restaurants in business by getting them to sell something to local people. Uh, we sent out an email and by that Thursday, you know, we had three or 4,000 people signed up to receive the email. Um, and we launched and, uh, it went, you know, it was a little crazy trying to match what people were ordering with what we were giving them until we had really developed a system, but we did and it worked fine. So essentially it was, you were, you were getting food, you were creating a delivery service or a pickup spot. So was this for just customers or this is also a way for restaurants to? Uh, the main thing was, was we knew that restaurant, one of the things that was very clear from everything we'd read about New York and, you know, cause they, we were behind obviously what was going on in, up in the Northeast was that there was this huge demand. Like I know that over 50% before COVID, over 50% of food sold in the United States was sold through restaurants. It wasn't through, sold through grocery stores. Yeah. And so when you cut off one of those arteries to people, like restaurants are closed, 50% of people's access to food was shut down. Uh, um, and that's when the grocery stores were running out of everything. And all of us as restaurateurs, people who had businesses, we had people who needed jobs, people who needed to get paid. If we didn't have an ability to sell them food in-house, how are we going to do that? And that's where we came up with the idea of like, well, we can sell food that's already made. And we got involved with the health department. They gave us their very clear understanding of like, well, everything has to be below this temperature um, by 11 o'clock if you're going to open at noon. And we enlisted, asked for other restaurants and said, hey, this is how it's going to work. And they all got involved. That first day, everyone showed up with cars and unloaded boxes and bags. We didn't know what we were doing. And you know, all these people who'd bought food showed up and we put it in their trunk in their back seat and we said, thank you. And that started Carver United. That's a really awesome thing. I, I, I wanted to ask the tough question there, like not to, it's not all about money, but, uh, you were doing this as an altruistic endeavor, but also to find a way to keep these restaurants, you know, somewhat with some income during this time. So was it successful financially? Like were people able to make somewhat of a income or drive some revenue during that time as well? Yeah, I think definitely, you know, the difference between uh, restaurants are incredibly risky from a day-to-day perspective because you have a menu of 20 things and you know you have to offer those 20 things and if you only sell 14 of them or whatever you have this loss that's built in that you have to sort of float in um the the real beauty of carver united was that you were selling a thing you were saying i'm selling a steak Mm. with potatoes and so your margins were sort of solid they were solidly built in um there was no necessary loss associated with it. So for a lot of the businesses like ours or any of the businesses involved, you know, there was immediately profit associated with this. 
not just cash flow, but profit. I mean, extra money that was to the good, not just money coming in. Because I think a lot of the schemes that were set up post-COVID for people, they were creating cash flow, but they were also spending more money than they were making, which is, as everyone in the restaurant business knows, the first thing that marks the end of restaurants <laughs> is when you're yeah. spending more than you're making. So, yeah. Never a good um, business move. No. Right. But I use, you know, we all say that, but a lot of businesses are in that position and they don't even know it until it's too late. Um, so I think it was a really, I mean, I think the things that it did that were smart was it kept people able to keep a staff for a little bit yeah, uh, for as much as they could. And then also, I think it really, in a really rich way, it sort of got the community involved and let them understand that they were a participant in this process of helping reach out to us and that, that we could reach out to them. And there was this, you know, that, that we were a community. I think that was the part that was so important to us. Yeah. So, and, and moving forward, and I, I want to get more into your history and some of the things, some of the other things that you're doing, but just to kind of tie that, the whole pandemic thing up with a bow, if imagine if you could actually do that. Um, what, because you, because you're a, a very much of a forward th- a thinker, you know, you, you think about things in a 360 degree and you think about what's going to be the future. What, what are your thoughts or what are your answers in your mind about uh, this business going forward now that you're open? And when do you see a real kind of um, closure, for lack of a better word? Hmm. I, I think that the restaurant industry itself has changed and I don't think it's going to go back to some sort of old version of itself. Uh, I think that there's a way in which these these events happen and they transform the industry in sort of clear ways. I do think that takeout is here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's not going to go away. I I think that, you know, we've now sort of grew as independent businesses. We've all sort of met a new kind of enemy, which is the sort of DoorDash, uh, the sort of delivery uh, phenomena, which I think is something that that we as businesses have to face and recognize that if, if we're asking people to do takeout, we've got to figure out a way to make sure that it's worthwhile for them rather than having something delivered uh, because we can't afford delivery as independent businesses um, within outside of a certain radius. Do you think that the business itself, restaurants will start to come back once there's some optimism associated with either a vaccine or some sort of turning the corner. I think that, until that happens, so many people are going to, they're okay with the status quo. I mean, they're, you know, all of us in the restaurant business are like, no, we don't like the status quo. But I think by the six, the six, where we're six months in, a lot of these people are used to this process. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, and there are a lot of people who aren't going to come back to restaurants for a long time. Yeah. You know, yeah. Cause they're, I, th- I think it's also an interesting conversation, and Max and I have talked about this a bunch, uh, especially, you know, him being involved on a daily basis with Y Hill and what's going on there, but, uh, and also the dichotomy of what's going on out near Carborough and Chapel Hill ver- and Durham and versus uh, Raleigh, and I, I, because of my day job, I get to see it kind of all, and the people in Raleigh, I've noticed, are hungry to go out. I don't, I mean, what? hungry, you know, like, if they're, if you're open, they're going out, but uh, Max used this term and it really made me think about it, like kind of reshuffles the deck about all these businesses. And also you don't have as much of a choice right now. So when you do choose that, that establishment has to be really good. And on top of that stuff, on top of their game. So 
but right. but also the people that are going out are the the restaurants that are open and doing things well and doing things responsibly are really busy right now especially in Raleigh I'm sure is that just the people of Carborough are, are you know seeing this in a different way than the people of Raleigh is it demographics and age like what 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 are you what are you seeing in in, in those differences especially as a restaurateur that's going into a new market in a few months I think it's demographics I think that younger people are much hungrier for the social aspect of dining out yeah. um and i think that in general you know the carborough chapel hill area is much more conservative in that regard um there's much more sort of a family vibe sort of thing going on and also we're driven by the university we are a i mean chapel carver is a very small town without the university right um and not having the energy around whatever it is maybe football games or summer camps or any of the things that sort of generate revenue um you're left with a much smaller pool of people. Uh, and also, I think the there is... Raleigh and Durham are much bigger, vibrant cities. Not not to put down Carver or Chapel Hill, but it's a very different feeling, for yeah. sure. People are you know? kind of there settling re- really into the community and not necessarily about the whole, like... Not that Raleigh's into like the CNBC and social aspect, but there is a younger demographic and some, especially in downtown Raleigh, that yeah wants to be out and about. Right, and and if you look in Chapel Hill, there's not that many places. I mean, that are open um, comparatively. So there's not this sort of expectation around that energy, which which I think you know I could definitely feel in Durham and I can feel in Raleigh a much more like, huh, you're not open. That's weird. Whereas here, it's like they call and go like, are you open? Hmm. Yeah, um, I think it's a little relative, right? Like, like you think about the amount of people that live in a city, and then you think about you know your demographics and and what what can make a restaurant work, and how many people need to come in on a daily level so that you can be profitable and all. But there's a there's a new there's a new change, and it almost becomes relative again because let's just say there were once a hundred restaurants, obviously not, but for the sake of argument, there were once a hundred restaurants. Now there are twenty restaurants. Well, at the same time. The hundred percent of the diners have now dwindled down to maybe only 25, 20 to twenty to twenty five percent of the diners because a lot of people do not want to go out. They don't want you know they're going to continue to order takeout and and do like their groceries online and and all that. And so yeah, like you you have a responsibility as a restaurant to be open and be fantastic, but you also then have to like cater to the people that are. Uh, that are going to dine. And so like, I, I've said that at, at Y Hill where we're open. It's like, you know, we're going to be as safe as we possibly can. We also have to know that like the people that are coming out have already kind of independently told us we are okay with being in public because by virtue of being here. So there's, there's kind of like a give and take to like the, the audience that you're, you're serving towards, I guess, you know, and by virtue right. of being open. Um, so Acme is open. Yeah. Now, uh, when did you make that decision to open? I know that you know there was phase one, phase two, all that. When did you open? Well, so what we did was we um, we have a back patio area which we've had for many many years, yeah. and we decided, or I decided, I guess I should say, I, I say we whenever I'm trying to like pass responsibility off on other people, <laughs> but in this case, you can just I blame, blame Francesca. I mean, she's not here. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, yeah. <laughs> I blame her for a lot. It never really works. It always comes back at me. Um, yeah, but sure. We covered our patio. Finally, we we had a guy who works here and another friend of the restaurants uh, come in and build this beautiful patio that I'd always wanted. Covered ceiling fans, you know, music. Yeah, the whole nine yards. Bought new tables, chairs, 
And once that was ready to roll, then we're like, okay, we can serve outside now and feel really confident that we're, you know, because before our issue was, you know, if it started to rain, it was like, well, we are not allowed to let you go inside. So you have to sit in the rain and enjoy your dinner. Um, so once that was covered, we said, okay, let's do this. Let's measure out. Let's make sure that we're doing the things, like you said, recognizing what our responsibility is, where it ends, and where guests take over. And then we opened up and, you know, it's been, it's been a little crazy. Like the, um, you know, people are hungry to go out to eat. We're, we, you know, we were talking about it this morning about opening up the dining room and what that's going to look like in the next like 10 days, two weeks. Would you say you are busy? Like, I would say, I mean, it's busy enough. I, I, I think that's the phrase that we're all going to talk about for a little bit. Are we busy enough? But I think we are. Um, and we also, uh, you know, just to add insult to injury for ourselves, it, it, was a, it was the right thing to do. It's really great. We completely rebuilt the way that we um, are paying people so that we are uh, completely a living wage uh, business. Um, for everybody who works in the business across the board. And our goal was that we really felt this was an opportunity to, to uh, fundamentally change the business back to what we think is necessary um, to make it survive. And we did, and and it's and that's been really great. That's That's been something that's been really super. What does that mean? Uh, our house, our back of the house and front of the house employees getting paid the same, or how is that? They are. Everyone gets paid the same amount, and we guarantee them, everyone, no matter what, that they'll get paid $15 an hour. And that can go up to as high as $21 an hour, depending on what how our business is running at any given time. But it really gives us the opportunity to... You know, we're we're open five days, so we have one basic staff. We have our kitchen staff works five days. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that, and and that's sort of how we built everything. But that was, you know, we recognized that for us, we we had to figure out a way to have the right number of people. Um, we didn't want to promise someone who was coming in to work from from a tip perspective what they were going to make. We knew that the model wasn't going to be the old model wasn't going to work here. So we switched it up. But yeah, I think we've been surprised at how busy we've been from serving people outside. Yeah. Um, it's still a novelty. So, but wait, that's curious to me. Like, so you said a minimum of $15, a maximum of $21. So is this, this is incorporating. So people obviously still leave tips at coming to Acme. So that tip generation is going, folding into your labor, labor model, I guess. And then, and then you're dispersing it amongst, but so there, there can be a cap, right? So you're, is that cap intentional for the times when times are lean or like, like effectively, I guess I'm just wondering why is there a cap? Oh, well, I mean, I guess there's not really a cap. We, what we're saying is that like, we will, like we're, we guarantee everyone a certain wage and we've seen it go as high as 20 something. So 21 is as high as we've seen it go. Oh, okay. I mean, obviously, that's, that's, could, I mean, yeah. if someone came in and dropped a $10,000 tip on us, it would go way, way up. Sure. Um, but I think that's the, what we're trying to figure out is, is how does that work? So that when we add someone so that we know if you added an employee in an additional employee at any time, you'd know with our basic cash flow, like, Oh, what is that going to look like for people's hourly wages? It gives you know gives us much greater sense of control around like you know it used to be you'd like when I started in this business you just people would flood restaurants with servers and you know oh we have fourteen guys on tonight yeah um, because they weren't paying them anything and you know they were making salad dressing and everything imaginable uh, now that doesn't really work 
So we were we want to make sure that any time we bring someone on, we know what we're doing. And how has that been going so far, like in terms of camaraderie within the restaurant? And has it I know this sounds cliche, but has it brought back of the house in front of the house closer? It has. I mean, everyone knows basically that if you have a busy night, that that's good for everyone. And mm. I think that for anyone who's worked in the restaurant business, that's one of the grand challenges if you're running a kitchen is how do you motivate the kitchen staff on a night when they're getting their ass kicked um, with the idea that no matter how hard they're working, they're not making more money than they would be. So I think that's been an, that's been an advantage. Um, but it also hopes, hopefully, you know, we want to ultimately be very transparent with people about the money that's coming in so that they feel, you know, they feel justly rewarded for the work they've done. So I'm glad we got into this because one of the questions I had and Max and I discussed earlier, um, you run your restaurant with a little bit of a different, let's say, management strategy in that you don't have like, um, at least as far as I know, you don't have a, a, a typical general manager. You have a right. group of managers and then you also have like a, a like what Francesca is. We talk about her, but because she's a great friend of the show and uh, wife to Forrest Mason, who's a great friend of the show and collaborator um, and a brilliant uh, videographer. If anybody's looking for one, by the way, I'll give him a quick plug. <laughs> Enough he's awesome. about Forrest. We don't need to keep talking about Forrest. This isn't the Forrest Mason podcast. Ooh, oh, maybe that's a good idea nice. for a show, Ooh, nice. fella. Um, no, but but uh, and, and yeah, you employ like a a, fi a financial manager, which in a traditional setting, the general manager would be the typical like handling the book stuff in the, in the restaurant. Right. So, talk a little bit about why you do that and how it works. Well, the reason that we sort of did that was we felt well, I felt very strongly that there. Are People have very specific strengths that we really want to rely on. Like Francesca as a business manager, she can do more in her position to, to really positively affect our, our finances than any one person if they were working as a general manager and as a business manager. So she's incredibly valuable from that perspective. Um, number two, we have had staff that's worked here for a really long time. So there's a great deal of like consistency around that. Um, and we also knew that we wanted to expand the businesses and that to do that well, we needed a team of people who sort of as a group could control finances, our concept of, of hospitality, how the narrative worked for all the various businesses. And I think that's been really, really, really important for us to, to really create a team that could move forward to Open Plum as a group. Uh, with a system in place about how we want to view those things. I think that that having sort of more of a team mentality gives everyone and sort of uh, gives a larger group of people a sense of ownership. And I think that's, you know, if you're in the restaurant business like I am, you know you're never going to make a fortune. You've got to be in it for other reasons. And uh, one of the things that we found is people are a big reason why I'm in this business. And Having really good people makes the job easier and better. Yeah, let's. I, I want to talk about why you're in this business and get there. But before we get there, we need to tell some stories about other people that are champions of the culinary talent in North Carolina, and that is the Folks Foundation. Yeah, the Folks Foundation, who are great sponsors of the podcast, they're a 501c3 nonprofit, and they talking about team, right? They, uh, through their ongoing grants and their, their publication of the Folks Journal uh, and their general store, I mean, they're doing a lot. They 
like to connect and bring together North Carolina artisans, whether they be chefs or podcasters or musicians or what have you, uh, artisans of all different types to come together to help promote and to endorse and support. So uh, we appreciate the support they give to us so that we can continue to tell our stories. So uh, think about that and uh, find out more. You can read their journal online at at folksfoundation.org and be sure to consider consider a small donation to help support North Carolina makers because Folks Foundation are the champions of all good things crafted in North Carolina and the folks that make them. And speaking of people being hungry, uh, we want to talk about our good friends at Hungry Harvest <laughs> because uh, they give you the option of saving a trip to going to the store if you're not comfortable with that yet. And you can get farm fresh produce, kitchen staples, and pantry items delivered right to your doorstep starting at just $15. Yeah, they have conventional and organic options as well as three harvest sizes to choose from. So to, if you're a big family or you're just living on your own or whatever, you can find something that is the right fit for you. And not only is it affordable and a convenient way to keep yourself stocked up on healthy foods, but it's a great way to make a difference with your grocery dollars because every time you receive a harvest, you're contributing to the fight against food waste and hunger in your community. Yeah, every delivery saves at least 10 pounds of food from going to waste and supports the work of local hunger-solving organizations such as the Interfaith Food Shuttle with produce donations. So... Sign up at HungryHarvest.net and use promo code NCFB30 for 30% off your first harvest. Now, Kevin, I think you know something about Hungry Harvest a little bit, too. You were mentioning that you might be collaborating with them. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm working with them on Wellfest, which is a uh, uh, event that's happening. Uh, it's, a, it's a virtual event this year um, about – I'm doing – I basically do – do a long cooking show where everyone will pick up a box of food, which will come from Hungry Harvest. Um, they'll take it home with them, and then they'll get to watch me <laughs> cook it with them and tell them how to get through the meal. Yeah. And uh, pork chops from firsthand food, but everything else is going to come from them, apples and Brussels sprouts and potatoes and that sort of stuff. It's, it's very cool. That's cool. So you're learning like technique, like a, a real chef technique. I wonder, like, what what's something that you do just technique-wise that you think uh, does not get done? Man, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit right now, but like when when you're when you uh, say decide to do your pork chops or so, what's something that you're doing that you know that the traditional home cook is probably not doing that's that takes you to the next level? Well, you know, I think anybody's cooking right now that you're definitely using sous vide a lot. Um, it provides the opportunity to really hold uh not overcook things essentially you know it allows you to put reverse sear if you want to like if you have a pork chop and you brined it and you you know sous vide it to to very rare or to rare or whatever and then you just sear it off you get that really good color hmm. but then you get that nice you know on the inside like something delicious that you know that's spectacular something called miqui salmon if you take salmon and you cook it for like 40 minutes at 104 degrees it comes out and it looks like it's sort of raw sushi grade salmon and it tastes like, but it tastes like perfect salmon, but it's completely safe. 
you know, and it is nice, delicious. Wait a second. So, wait, I mean, wait. I think so you have to cook, so you have to sous vide the salmon, or you're just saying you just cook it at 104 degrees, you said? You sous vide it at 104, at 104. degrees. Okay, for 40 minutes. Yeah, so it's, it's basically a very, very low temperature, so it doesn't take any color on. Like, you don't get any of that sort of... Uh, pinking grain out of the of the salmon it okay. still looks like raw fish but it flakes a little bit like cooked salmon but has this ridiculous unctuous quality mm. that you just can't get from cooked mm. salmon i think i'd like to try um, that that sounds awesome yeah i think yeah. sous vide so, cooking should be so, more uh people should adopt sous vide cooking more you know un- sous vide means under vacuum that's right yeah so what i'm shocked at they're so inexpensive you know these sous vide wands that you can buy yeah what what I think is coming right in the next near future would be people have sous vide wines. You have your little water, you bring it up temperature, and then you buy you know something at the store that's in a sous vide bag, and you just get home and you drop it in the water, and in twenty five oh, minutes you've got a cooked meal. That's you know, the I, next that's thing. Some, yeah, there's just no reason that that wouldn't be there because it's such a soft way to cook things that you if you have you know it doesn't overcook vegetables. It'll keep them crunchy. It'll but it'll still cook them. Yeah, um, and they're preserved in that bag for for a while, for for a long time. Oh, for a really long time. But yeah. but nobody is uh, nobody's doing that right now, right? In the grocery store, like you can't go and buy something that's already pre. I don't think so. I haven't seen. I'm sort of amazed that it. I, I think it's because people don't know how to use the wands. They haven't figured out like how easy they are to use. And um, it's funny. I actually had a conversation with one of our servers yesterday, and she was asking. She's like, "Why is it that?" Like health regulations are so firm on sous vide cooking, like in restaurants that most like certain states are like, like you don't even try it and you have to have a HACCP plan. There's all this like crazy chaos to like just set up so that you can cook in a sous vide fashion. And it's like, she's like, why is that? And my answer to her, and you tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I'm like, you know, it is traditionally a simple way of cooking, but it does require a little bit of knowledge of understanding like temperatures and 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 process. And much like many things that happen in our in our culture, if we don't understand it, we just say screw it. We're, you're not allowed to do it. And so, so it's like you can cook in this method. You just have to kind of know it. And but when you then, if you didn't have a very firm re- regulation on it, there can it could go awry real fast. I, I would say. Probably, I, but I think too it goes back to what I, I just don't think they've done it enough. So we don't really know. They don't know how to apply rules to it yet. They don't. They don't really say, "Oh, we know this, this, and this." Now they're just sort of like, "Well, this is possibly scary, so let's just stop it in general." Because um, sous vide does come under lots of regulations, and yeah, you have to have your plan and make sure that you're following it. And, and we do all of that stuff. But I think that it's it's more likely that people will get into once people are into it, it'll be like, "Oh." I get how this works. Yeah, no, this I really- I know some good home cooks who have who have the sous vide and they've kind of mastered it and they yeah they swear by it. So I I need to bite the bolt and just get one of the wands. It's yeah. it's enough already. Yeah, and buy I mean the bags. what's cool about it too that's very like I mean this is this is really geeky, but if you were a home cook and you had a nine to five job or whatever or nine to whatever job, um, you could set it up before you leave home with the water and the wand in there and ready to go. And then, you know, you're like, well, it takes 45 minutes to heat up the water. You can turn it on with your phone. Yeah. You know, yep. With an app and say, okay, turn it on to 168 degrees. Yeah. And so when you get home, it's just ready for you to drop it in and go. So there's, it's a, it, as it makes a process, so much sense. Yeah. But, and it's fun to do, like, to be honest, it's really amazing. Like you can cook 
anything sous vide and and enjoy the the way it comes out and be like wow that is like game changing yeah Yeah. oh eggs i love sous vide eggs wow well listen let's you you mentioned the word geeky uh so let's let's jump in over there because uh one might have called you that one day, um, as as Max brought to my attention. You uh, you were, or I believe, a recipient of the um, of the Moorhead Kane Award, which uh, which or scholarship, which gives yeah. you a, a nerd alert, nerd alert, yeah, nerd which alert. gives you a, a, a free ride to UNC Chapel Hill. Pretty yeah. pretty awesome there. Uh, you couldn't have been much of a slouch in school or your academics to to yeah. receive that. Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> It's very true. It was one of my parents' proudest moments is when I left college to wash dishes professionally. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's, let's, yeah. That, so you went to New York actually uh, to, to learn your craft as a writer, which you right. still do some of that now. But, yeah. uh, but in that, you needed a job to make some money. And so you started working at restaurants. Right. That's, that's how the story goes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then I ended up moving back down here um, with the same sort of thing in mind. I mean, the, Restaurants, night work, writing was day work. It made sense, you know. And um, with time, you know, the I recognized that I liked the restaurant world, um, and it sort of was a natural fit in ways that I didn't really understand at the time. That it sort of makes sense to me now. Um, that were different from other jobs that I'd had or other things that I tried to do. Um, my my family was addicted to the dinner table. It was our sort of, it was the thing for us for a lot of reasons. And uh, revisiting that on a daily basis as a part of my job made sense. Um, And that was, you know, I I remember thinking at some point in time, this is, this is sort of a silly thing, but uh, I was offered a job to work and for a bank in Paris. Um, and I remember when I turned that down, I knew that on some level, like I had changed, like the, the boat had turned towards the restaurant world in a very sincere way. Like I was moving towards it, whether I liked it or not, I'd sort of not chosen some things that were obviously could have been interesting, but I, I'd said no. Hmm. Yeah. You, you charted the course at that, po- at that point. Right. I mean, we all make those sorts of choices. Choices and and sometimes we're aware when we make a decision that sort of moves us in a big way and sometimes there are little little small decisions that do that yeah but that was one at the time I remember making that decision and recognizing wow that's a big that's whether you whether I want to admit it or not I just made a big decision and okay so that sets you on your path and we get a, a little insight into why you chose the restaurant industry but now now that leads me to uh acme let's just say this is acme has been a success i mean uh i i assume that's your main source of income uh you do write uh, 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 <laughs> right. do write a bit yes, it is definitely my main source of income. your main source yeah. of income although yeah. you have created like three at least three festivals i think that you're working on between wanderlust oh, yeah. salt and smoke and uh uh the other one you mentioned earlier or um you'll you'll yeah. tell me about that in a second but um now so it's been 22 years since you opened a restaurant. 1998 was Acme, and you are getting back into the opening game. That's like that's almost like the equivalent, Max, of um, 
you, your daughter, your your oldest daughter, Alexandra, is now 10 years old, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So that's like having a baby now, but like imagine another 20 years. It's like you're, you're getting back into the... <laughs> Are you the, saying this is an accident? Is, that, he's, is he a... Is, well, Kevin, I'm not saying that, but maybe uh, Kevin I mean, accidentally had a, a baby restaurant. <laughs> um, so, so tell us about the decision there of why yeah. get get back into the game of opening. I mean, I know you said earlier the narrative of creating your management was to open other business, but it, but it's been quite some time since. I think that there were a number of things that that sort of showed up in front of me in the past several years that were sort of random, fun. Um, possible courses that I could have taken that I didn't follow. Um, and my, so my youngest daughter will turn 18 on Wednesday. Oh, and congratulations. At, at that point, you know, at that point, she can vote. Um, nice. She can, vote. she's already registered. She's ready. She's, she's awesome. Lined nice. up. She's <laughs> get out. And yeah, vote, she people. and her sister are big politicos. So they're ready to roll. Um, so I, I, I recognize I had the opportunity with sort of time to move in that direction. And then um, my sister, who had lived in New York for uh, many, many years um, and had worked as a sort of culinary director for All Clad, for those of you who don't know, it's like sort of the, the high-end cooking equipment that, that all the yeah, yeah. culinary professionals use. She was their culinary director for years and she left Brooklyn and moved down to Durham, and she decided she wanted to open a restaurant. And um, so I was like, okay, we can do this. Um, and we found a great location uh, right in downtown, uh, which has parking, which was really crucial to me. Um, and we sort of went from there. I think that we knew that we knew that I knew that Durham was. A great market. I think that was without a question. I think always when you move into a market is, um, I looked around what worked and what didn't work and tried to follow a suit and say like what what what's not being done, what is being done, what can we do well. Um, I'd seen too many people make the mistake of thinking that they were the thing that was important in a business, and you know <laughs> it's not. It's about the food and the hospitality and your location and the people that work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I wasn't going to get fall into the trap that, oh, I'm so wonderful. People are going to follow me around. I was going to fall into the trap of like, well, if we have a space that's nice with good parking <laughs> recipes there to work. You know, it's not about me anymore. Which is, Max always which, jokes at me when I reference parking as an important part of the business. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's, it's, it's easy. <laughs> yeah. Convenient. Take an Uber. You don't, you don't need parking anymore. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I'm a big fan of I, – I just – I know that these big giant chains don't go into spaces without parking for a reason. Mm, and I when know. I see an Outback Steakhouse without parking, then I'll be like, okay, the revolution is here. Right. Um, but I, I do think that there is a silent majority of people who, whether or not they get a parking space or not, if they know that you have parking, they'll at least consider going to your restaurant because even if they don't find a spot, their initial thought will have been, well, they've got parking. Um, and I know that exists for us in, in Carborough. Sure. So we so we jumped in and we said let's do a business. And so that's where we're really close. We have a chef de cuisine who is going to move here in the next ten days, twelve days, something like that. From New York, um, from California. Oh, from California. California, yeah. He um, in the wine world, he runs the restaurant culinary part of Fess Parker's winery. 
Oh, nice. And, and San Ynez. Yeah, San Ynez. Oh, it's nice. a beautiful area. Been and there, Los Olivos there, yeah. Been there many times. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he's he's doing, this is this is the part. I sort of said to him, it's like, it's the turducken of, of, of life's labors he's putting forward. Like he is, he's getting married. <sighs> and like, so he's having this wedding for like 30 people. He's made all the food, including raising a hog, which he's like killed and turned into all these various pork products. He's raised all these vegetables that he's serving everything there. They're getting married next week. Then they're moving here. They bought a house in Durham and then they're going to start a new job. So it's like a, a, a new job and a new home and a new marriage. Like it's a turducken yeah. of like, and then his wife, his new wife will be pregnant within like a couple of weeks also. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just imagine throw that. that in there. <laughs> yeah. But wow. I mean, he's, he's from East Texas, uh, has a very sort of similar mindset around food that I do. Um, he's obviously a lot younger and a lot smarter, but, uh, he's, super enthusiastic and I think he's going to do a great job with what we want to do there. So I'm thrilled. Neither here nor there, but I'm just wondering, curious, did uh, Elizabeth Cooper help set up that connection? The National Fest Parker uh, representative who lives in the area and is famed uh, for being the buyer at Southern Seasons? I mean, she may have had something to do with it. I mean, it's essentially he, he, um, you know, he applied. We, it's one of those things. We had had people from all over People in Alaska applied. It was very interesting, like this uh, COVID uh, thing of like where people wanted to work, you know. And I was like, okay, let's try it out. And then when when I so when I spoke to him immediately, I was like, okay, that's the guy that I want running this kitchen. Like he definitely has the enthusiasm and uh, the requisite energy it takes to do this, especially now. Like, yeah. You have to be optimistic to dive in at this point or crazy. <laughs> I would say, yeah, one of the two at least. But right. but I like the idea that, I, I mean, I've been preaching this since the, since the quarantine and the shutdown had happened was that, you know, I appreciate guys like you that are, that are trying to find a way to exist in this, in this um, business right now, whether it's reopening Acme, creating a bigger patio, putting a roof on it, making it inhabitable by your guests, finding solutions, and then also like, hey, let's open up another restaurant. Why not? I mean, the the thing is, is people are going to need to eat and people are going to need to eat out. And as long as you can provide the the safest and, and probably even the most convenient manner, then, then more power to you. And I appreciate that you're you're pushing forward to doing this. It, it's unfortunate when you hear like, you know, either through the rumor mill or just in social media or whatever, where like, oh, this restaurant's not going to open again. Oh, this place is going to close. This is, you'll never see this place open again. It's like, oh man. And it's really, it, it, it could be really sad to, to just think about those things. But I do like looking at the other side of that coin where it's like, yeah, but there are also a lot of other people that are going to try to push forward and make sense of this in this environment right now. And I, and I look to you as one of those people, which uh, is, a, is a good good thing in our business right now. Well, we definitely think that there are very few opportunities where you get to jump in. Um, and when change is happening, you really have a chance to, to do that. Like moving into like what we've done here with takeout and eating in, it's like we've created customers and loyalty and connection in the community that we wouldn't, would take years and years to develop 
outside of COVID. Like COVID has really solidified people who are part of our community. And I think in Durham, we're, we see this great opportunity because, you know, we know that this thing will eventually go away, right? And there will be this chance um, right now for us to start small, uh, learn what we do well, start a conversation with the people of Durham and become the restaurant that we should be um, rather than the restaurant that we think we want to be, which, you know, in normal times you open a restaurant, it's like, okay, great. We've been open 10 days and here's our first 300 person Saturday. And, you know, everyone is just devastated and the food's mediocre and it takes 45 minutes to get out of the kitchen. Oh gosh, um, We're not going to have that issue, right? <laughs> we're going to be able to open and be yeah. smart. And, you know, we've got some cool ideas about how to do takeout so we can really learn as we go. So what can people expect from Plum Durham? I know the uh, calling card is small plates, big bar. What else? Right. What, yeah. <laughs> well, that's obviously something that's going to be um, changing. Uh, we're going to open initially with takeout um, okay. to let that sort of become our thing. We're going to have some outdoor tables um, so people can sit. They can get it sort of picnic-wise and sit outside and eat. Um, really begin to get our main thing will be trying to figure out what it is that we can do as a kitchen. That's, that is what the people of Durham and who live directly right in our neighborhood want. I think that's kind of the thing that, you know, having had Acme for as long as I've been here, I sort of know specifically what's the zeitgeist going on. And then I'm also, we have a whole group of menu items that people know that they want. And so that's pretty straightforward for us. I think in Plum, it's a very, very different thing. It's going to be much more like, is this, is this couples? Is this singles? Are people wanting dinner for two? Are they wanting something that they can eat right away? Or is it something that they're going to eat later? Um, what are, we have a couple things that are really cool that we we're going to use. Like we, we've got this crazy great machine from Missouri. It's, it's called the old Hickory. It's this smoker. That's a gas assist smoking machine. Um, which is super cool. It only gets to like 350 degrees. Um, we're going to be using that really clearly to make some really great chicken. Um, but we're going to do uh, take out again with that same sort of Southern feel. We're definitely both my sister and I grew up going to our grandparents' farm and having great meals. And I think there's no doubt that that's sort of the touchstone for the, and at least experientially something that, we want to make sure that we can bring to, to people um, is that pleasure around it. But we're also very committed to the fact that we feel like the most expensive thing that people spend now in restaurants is their time um, and it's not their money. So we, we really want to make sure that we are a business that doesn't uh, say, hey, you have to spend three hours to have dinner here. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm excited. I, I'm also curious, like with all of the things that you're doing, um, you, we were we were going to we were trying to get to the. Uh, uh, smoke and salt. I'm say, uh, am I saying that right? Salt and smoke. Close. <laughs> I, I, I mix that up. Everyone so, always says it backwards. It's true. It's funny. Yeah. Maybe we should switch. <laughs> salt and smoke. Yes, that's uh, alphabetical. That's good. Yeah. The salt, salt and smoke fest. Uh, that also, and your wanderlust fest. These are these are huge events that happen all over. Uh, all over the country, um, and as, as like Forrest was the one that was first telling me about it, and I was like, "Wait, what? He's doing this and this and this." And there's so many components to it. It 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 really was inspiring to hear. Would you let us know a little bit? I mean, obviously now with like COVID, I think everything is like 
virtual it's it's this that uh at least explain to like what you were doing and then if the potential of us being able to enjoy these things in the future are are evident at any point well so i so salt and smoke first was something that was sort of created with uh if you guys know sarah black you know sarah nc choices no she used to run the barber farmer's market um and a, a woman who used to work with me and now lives in Maine with three kids uh, and a child. And I, we started this thing called Salt and Smoke with the idea of having a North Carolina-based party. Um, and we just invited our friends. Um, we had it at a, the first one we had was in a farm uh, right outside of town. And we had this giant bonfire and had oysters. And I cooked some collard greens and a bunch of cornbread. And we sat around and drank beer and wine in front of this huge... Uh, bonfire in the middle. It was like the first or second week in December. And it was one of the weirdest things. We sat there and it was freezing cold. The bonfire was this huge bonfire and it started to snow out of nowhere. And um, Hmm. what was great is that as you were standing close to the fire, you could watch the snow come towards you and it would evaporate before it got (laughs) to you. Um, And we realized that there was a possibility that we could do this on a larger scale. And so we started to ramp it up and, um, you know, uh, last year, you know, we had, gosh, I don't know how many people came, uh, something like 800 people, uh, this giant festival of music, oysters from my friend Tom Gallivan on the eastern shore of Virginia, hmm. um, first-hand foods, whole hog barbecue. Um, it was sort of a celebration of what fall is around here. And it was, you know, it was a labor of love. It was something we just, we thought was something that was really missing around here. Uh, and, you know, and, and then of course this year we're not going to be able to do it. So that was, that was the first thing. And then Wanderlust was, um, and is this giant, uh, festival that started many years ago and travels around the world now, but goes, uh, primarily now it's a yoga festival. They do day festivals all around the country, um, where they travel around and do those. And then what I was involved with was when they had these very large scale, eight to 12,000 people events in at basically skiing resorts during the summer. Uh, the largest, which is in Squaw Valley, which is no longer called Squaw Valley because of this whole naming thing that's gone on, but it's, uh, oh, with the yeah, native American appropriation and all. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. It was all, it was called, uh, they call it whatever, uh, Squaw Valley, like Squally I think it's called the like Washington that. football Valley. Now. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, it's so, um, you know, it was like 12,000 people for this giant yoga festival. And then they would have this very uh, farm to table esque dinner that I was in charge of that would always be on top of the mountain. Um, so we would do, you know, I would show up on a Tuesday and uh, would have worked a menu out, sent it to their chef, and then work directly with them to create these crazy meals, which we would then put on gondolas and take hour up the mountain to do from a mountaintop <laughs> perspective. And then, you know, do it again. And it was, it was crazy, crazy to do, but very, I mean, it was super cool. I mean, I love doing it, whether it was in Canada or Hawaii or California, they've really changed what they're doing now because of COVID. They're really focusing solely on the sort of the, yoga piece of what they do they, they sure. do have still have one less tv um but they are they're quite an amazing organization and 
was super cool to be involved with them through all of that, you know, and yep. there's an opportunity to do it again. I'd certainly love to. Sounds I love it. Awesome. Doesn't, it doesn't ever feel like there is a project that is too big for you to handle. Uh, <laughs> I, you, you, you definitely like to bite off a big piece. Well, the- <laughs> Kevin, before we get out of here, um, we do want to, uh, Give a give a shout out to uh, the Triangle Wine Company, who's a fantastic sponsor of the show as well. Triangle Wine Company, of course, has four locations out there in uh, Holly Springs, Cary, Southern Pines, and Morrisville. And you can go to trianglewineco.com for all of your wine and beverage needs. Don't forget to use the NCFB promo code when you are buying online because they deliver and they well they you can order online you can pick up outdoor uh, curbside or even deliver if you're you know in their area that is and uh, and when you're there you can also enjoy buying a uh, pint of proof alcohol ice cream because they also sponsor the show and they think different about dessert by putting uh, they put booze in frozen milk isn't that a great idea like who doesn't want to enjoy that uh so they have flavors like bourbon caramel they have uh, coconut rum strawberry moonshine just to say a few Uh, but you can you can get all of that ice cream at the triangle wine company or at harris teeter or lowe's all around north carolina just look for them in their beer and wine uh, sections of those grocery stores Yep, and every guest of our show receives a pint. So, Chef, next time I'm out there, or uh, maybe we get to sit down and taste some wine for for the list at Plum, I'll bring you a pint. Sounds delicious. Yeah, awesome, great. We're looking forward to everything that you're doing, man. And 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 thank you so much for being on the show. You know, for one, we should have had you on the show years ago because you've been you've been leading the charge. But you know, when it happens is is the time that it happens, and the fact that you've been able to do so much. In this year for the community, I think this is a perfect time to have you on the show so that people can understand really uh, what you do and what you do for the community. Uh, you know, say what you will. Some people do things for business, for money, for for pleasure, whatever. It does. It does feel uh, altruistic in your in your endeavors. You do a lot for the community just because it needs to get done, and uh, I appreciate that from what you what you have going on over there. Well, I appreciate what you guys are doing. I think that this area. I mean, it's possible to do that sort of stuff because there's enough heart. And, you know, you guys share that every every week, so that's important. Thanks for saying that. Appreciate it. And thanks for coming on. Thanks for being here. And as Max said, thanks for doing what you do. Best of luck with Plum. Uh, I look forward to uh, joining you there at some point. And uh, for everybody out there, get yourself to Acme and Carborough if you're ready to dine out or get some takeout from Plum when it opens up. When is it opening up, Chef? should open by the middle of October at the very latest. We should be up and running. And so a month cool. from today, we will be serving food in Durham. Okay. So come see us. So It'll get be your, great. Get yourself some takeout of Plum. You will eat and drink very merrily. Thanks for listening to the NC F&B Podcast. And if you've stuck with us this long, review us on iTunes. And remember, five stars are encouraged.